NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Welcome, viewers. It's fall of 2020, and in today's National Writing Project collab, we're talking with Catherine Shilton of the New York Times Learning Network. The National Writing Project has been working with student argument for a long time, the topic of today's collab. And um, through the College Career and Community Writers Program, we've reached thousands of teachers, tens of thousands of students, and as usual, students lead the way, showing adults how to be passionate, thoughtful, and respectful in civic discourse. At the New York Times Learning Networks, Catherine Children and her colleagues have chosen 100 student arguments and published them in, um, in a book called Student Voice, available from Norton and Catherine's holding up the cover of the book right there. Um, these essays came from a contest that the New York Times Learning Network held over a period of five years. And these are the winners and the runner-ups. And I bet you can't tell which ones are which. I really um, can't. Yeah. On today's shows, then we'll hear about the work of the New York Times uh, Learning Network. And best of all, here are selections from some of the students. So my guest today, Catherine Chilton, was editor-in-chief at the uh, New York Times Learning Network. Uh, for a period of time, 19, how many years, Catherine? Uh, 14, oh, 14 12 years. and a half when I was editor-in-chief, yeah. All right, editor-in-chief, she still is working there. Um, and before coming to the Times, she spent 19 years as an English teacher in the New York City um, school system and was a teacher consultant for the New York City Writing Project, so she's, she's one of us. So welcome, Catherine. I'm so pleased to have you here and um, eager to hear about um, this work. So you, if you could start us off by telling us a little bit about the New York Times Learning Network. Sure. Hi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As I always say, the Writing Project raised me. I student taught with Paul Allison, who was a Writing Project person back when I was about 22 years old. And that, that very summer, or the next summer, I did a Writing Project um, program in the Bronx and never look back. So um, happy to love to talk to the writing project. Um, so the, the learning network, if you don't know it, the whole purpose of our site is to help people teach and learn with Times content. Um, and we've been around over 20 years now. But when I took over in 2006, it was this, I mean, it was a brown website. I don't know, that was our color scheme. And it was brown in all ways. It was kind of it was a 1998 created thing that basically churned out a lesson plan a day, um, which was useful, but uh, 14 years on, it's gone through a couple different iterations and much, we're not at all focused on giving teachers stuff as much as we are focused on inviting kids all over the world into a conversation about what's going on. Um, of course, you know, re front page news, you know, everything that's battering all of us right now with the constant news cycle but much more than that just inviting them into the whole conversation anything the times could cover so it could be politics sports fashion TikTok videos science food whatever it is um and we do that in a couple of ways one since 2009 we have asked a uh posted a writing prompt every single day that's based on something in the times and you know it could be like the death penalty one day, but it could be like 
I don't know, your grandmother's cooking the next day. So it's, it's mm -hmm. kind of all over the map. Um, and that's obviously like low stakes kind of writing and kids all over the world come on and have their say. But we also run all these contests, one of which is the source of this book. So um, that's... That, yeah. um, I know that Writing Project teachers like love the learning, the learning network and uh, use it constantly. You can see it in posts and all kinds of um, ways. Um, and one of the things we found in our, in our work with argument writing is um, the, the circle of interest of um, even middle school to high school is the same circle of interest of, as adults. Like they, right. they talk about the things we care about too. It's not like there's like a whole alternate universe there. So I'm, I'm not surprised yeah. that, um, you know, Times content speaks to students and students speak to Times content. Yeah, people constantly are asking, you know, thinking that our site has some special magic where we rewrite the news for kids. And we're like, no, yeah. it's for 13 and up. And our feeling is, you know, there's anybody, the Times is for everybody. And there's, you know, it's not like the print paper your grandfather read. There's all kinds of ways into the paper, all kinds of visual stuff and yeah. podcasts. And, you know, so there's something for everybody. Well, there's always, you know, this funny phrase about bringing the real world into your classroom. And, you know, our stance has been, the real world is already in your classroom. You don't have to bring it in. It's already there. <laughs> Would that every teacher have thought that, but yes. Um, so tell us how this book, you know, came to be and, and what your ideas were and your hopes for it. Yeah. So um, let me show it again. And the reason why it's not just the essays that are by kids. This cover illustration is also by a 16 year old. Uh -huh. um, and I love it so much. Um, anyway, it came about because back in 2014, we decided to run this editorial contest, student editorial contest, and it was immediately super popular. Um, and at this point, we get uh, 10,000 essays every year, and it has to go through seven rounds of judging. We have something like 45 judges, and those judges are, you know, uh, journalists from the Times mm. newsroom, but also we always get volunteers from the opinion page yeah. who will kind of help us judge. So to win this contest or to place, we usually have about 50 kids we honor in some way, you know, these are good essays. Um, so we, uh, well, eventually these ended up in print and an editor at Norton saw them in print and said, wow, I want to read more of these. And that's the short version of how it became a book. But um, just so people can understand, you know, the context when they look at them, the basic rule is they're all 450 words each. Um, there's not much to it except kids have, can write about whatever they want as long as they can make us care as readers. Yeah. Um, it has to be evidence-based. They have to use at least one time source and one source that's not from the New York Times. Most kids use many more than that, but they have to at least tell us about that. Um, and I'll tell you a tiny little story about its evolution because I think uh, maybe if the people listening to this who care about argument might have gone through some of the same thing, which is we had all kinds of contests on our site and it asked kids to write poetry and make videos and do podcasts and you know all kinds of things. When we started this contest, it's because all of us are former teachers and we knew the common core standards had just become a thing. And we saw that argument was everywhere. And of course our job is to get people to teach with the times and you know we publish a daily opinion section. So that was obvious, but we were so sure that we were gonna get the most like dutiful paint by numbers, you know, stuff. We just didn't think it would be like 
we didn't think argument said fun to kids. It wasn't like your personal essay or whatever. But that first year, I think we honored maybe eight winners. And one of them was this kid who I'm still in touch with. And he's in the book I wrote. Um, this kid, Noah Spencer, who's a Canadian kid who wanted to write about gender equity and, you know, et cetera. But his headline has been imitated by kids ever since. And it was the headline that kind of, I think, showed us that you could do this in an interesting way and kids would. He, he called his essay, why I, a heterosexual teenage boy, want to see more men in Speedos. And like everyone loved it. The essay is an excellent essay, but just that he kind of had the nerve to send right. something in right. with that. And kids have imitated that ever since. We get essays every year with that same basic construction. Uh, um, cool. But I think it kind of opened things up and kids realized they could write about what they want, kind of how they wanted. This wasn't a standardized test. This was like a real audience who they needed to get interested. So I think students really do think it's fun. I mean, that's been our experience too. And really? C3WP is that the classroom is loud. They're talking all the time. They're interested, they're engaged. Um, you know, I think argument writing kind of has a bad rap. And as a, you know, freshman comp teacher in college, maybe it's our fault. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I always tried to be fun, but there is sort of a bad reputation for it that I think is not shared by students. I think they really enjoy it. Yeah, I, I mean, that's what all the teachers, you know, the second book, it's two books, really. It's a collection of essays, and then it's a teacher's guide to that's, that book, those essays. That yeah, that is basically me um, asking every single kid I could get hold of to tell me about their writing process, every kid mm -hmm. that won, and then a bunch of teachers who teach with the contest giving their advice. And then I also talked to some people on the opinion page, like Nick Kristoff, who's mm -hmm. always such a gent and will happily really? save time for the learning network at any time. And so it's it's a kind of mishmash of advice. Um, where was I going with that? I don't know. That's oh, yeah, teachers saying that it's just what you said, that when yeah. they get into it, um, kids love it. So um, so, so you've mentioned a couple of things you've noticed about student that it's lively and that it's, it's not formulaic. Um, you know, I didn't see a lot of five paragraphs themes. I'm sure we could find one, but, um, maybe it's because it needs five paragraphs. Um, but I, I, I think, um, I'd be interested in more about what, uh, impressed you about these student arguments and, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, first, I, one thing I just want to say about the book itself, you know, I mean, I think anybody watching this video and certainly you may stay impressed by kids, right? Like that's why we're in the business. We're, like we're always surprised by them and we're always learning new things. And, and kind of to me, a teenage point of view, if honest and well-expressed is automatically just fascinating, right? Um, so letting kids know that they can do that is great. And I took a sheaf of these essays to a school where I didn't, I barely knew the teachers. I knew them from online and mm -hmm. they said, oh, we study argument. You know, you can try them out in our class. So I brought a bunch of essays up to the school in upstate New York. And it was kind of like, you know, they the teachers divided the kids into groups and they were all reading them and discussing. And I was walking around listening in. And this one kid said, you know, we've been studying argument this whole semester. But everything we read, and this is a quote from the kid, he said, is by like 50 year old white guys who do this for a living their whole life, you know? And he's like, it's so great to read these. Like, 
they're not like perfect. I don't feel like I have to have a graduate degree to like achieve this, right. you know, and they're like things I'm interested in. So I was like, ah, oh, thank you, kid. My rationale, you know, given to me on a, a plate. Um, right. But yeah, I, so, so that's what I like. I mean, really what impresses me is like, you have 450 words, you have to make a really strong argument about something that you can support and do it with a little bit of voice and style. Like, could I have pulled that off at 16? I don't think so. Yeah. So, right? Um, I mean, maybe, I don't know. I, I don't think I was asked to at age 16. So, you know, unless you ask, you don't know if you can do it or not. Excellent point. Yeah. Um, why don't you take us into some of these essays, some of your favorites? I'm sure that all 100 of them are your favorites but um, you had to choose some. So uh, if you could share with us some of the student writing, that would be, um, that would be great. Uh, all right, let me, I wanna preface it a little bit by saying, cause there's, I wanna share three, I think with you guys. Um, and believe me, the part where I had to pick what to share was maybe a day of work for me. Cause it's just what you said. I love them all, all for different reasons. There are a few in there that are five paragraph essays. Maybe the thesis sentence is even at the last line of the first paragraph, you know? the kind of thing that kids absorb in middle school, or early high school, but few of them are like that. Um, but the one, like one piece, one thing that I wanna make sure to say in this interview and kind of to introduce what I'm about to read to you is a point that we've started to make to kids after we're now seven years. This book is actually, I think seven years of the contest and this will be All our right. eighth, right? So what we've started to realize is that we need to say to kids and I don't think they believe us all of them, what we're interested in is what you have authority on. Do not write to us about something that you think you should write about. There's I, one of the teachers that whose uh, work is throughout the teacher guide of this, he's like the backbone of it, is this guy, Cabby Hong, who teaches in Wisconsin. His kids often place, um, and he, he gets his kids' work out into the world in all kinds of ways, and ours is just one of them. But he says that he's always going around listening to kids, and they'll be telling them his, their topic, and he'll say, you're not a fellow at the Brookings Institute. You're a 16 year old kid. Like, you know, think about something that you actually have authority on or a stake in or experience with. And your essay is gonna have that much more, you know, it's gonna sound and feel and be real. Um, and when we had Nick Kristoff on our, we had a webinar with him where he actually said that to kids. He said, you know, if you're a student athlete, you have authority on that, right? If you're a, a musician, you have authority. You know, if you're like a kid in a blended family, you have something to say about that. You have a part-time job. There's all kinds of ways you can bring your lived experience in and it's evidence. So throughout this book, go ahead. I, I just have a funny story. I, you just reminded yeah. me of a funny story teaching uh, that um, I was um, at a portion of my course, this is the freshman college course, that really was turned over to student interest and student arguments. So the majority of it. So, and I knew that like getting the right topic was like kind of critical. The wrong topic is probably bad writing, you know, and a good topic. So, so there was a young woman in my class and she was studying like um, Star Wars, the, you know, the arms thing where they were gonna have like lasers in the sky or something to shoot down missiles. That was like a shield. And okay. it was a scientific thing. And I thought, she's just reading the news. That's just not. So I, I sit down and talk to her. I go, are you sure you want to write about this? this is this something you really care about? She looks at me like a completely crazy person, like you crazy adult. And she goes, 
well, I don't want to die. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that put me in my place. Like, okay, yeah, go, go. I don't. Yeah, those are the stakes. Then have at and come up with something good because I don't want to die either. <laughs> no, but that's really true. Like, so much of the stuff, like, like every year when our um, judges get this stuff, the feedback we mostly get is like, my God, I didn't know any of this. Like. Like I remember vividly early on, and now this is some of this stuff now, you know, the book's out, like things age quickly and you already know this, but like sort of the canary in the coal mine about kids and their desire to rid the stigma of mental health, right? We started getting tons of essays about like how bad mental health support in school was, how important it was. Now you see that everywhere. But when that first started coming into our, our interview, I had not read it anywhere. Yeah. Same with well before um, Parkland, we were hearing from kids about how screwed up the um, those those lockdown drills are and yeah. how freaky and they don't work. And, you know, yeah. like we just we feel like we always learn something new. Um, one of my favorites is a kid writing about like how toxic the chat is in video games. Yeah. Like you'd have to be a gamer of with, you know, a political lens kind of to to name that and and do research around it and you know so right. anyway we just we learned a ton from kids every year on this stuff so, so um let's yeah. hear some okay yeah so i want to uh, introduce the one that um you know when you think about why do you do argument writing right like for a standardized test sure okay but really the goal for a newspaper or for our contest is to change things right to mm -hmm to make people understand something they didn't understand. So when I took those essays up to upstate New York school and uh, showed them to a bunch of kids and they read a bunch, this was easily their favorite, hands down, all the classes I taught that day or worked with that day. Um, and they all said, wow, we didn't know this. And you know, this is gonna change how we uh, think about this, this kind of situation. And so in that one is, it's called, I'm gonna actually read maybe not all of it, but enough to give you a flavor. Um, it's by a young woman named Asaka Park. And I'm reading from the book. It's called, I'm a Disabled Teenager and Social Media is My Lifeline. And she was 17 when she wrote it. It says, I'm keenly attuned to the unwritten rules of social interaction. I can identify the subtle variations in people's facial expressions, and I'm quick to read between the lines. And my discernment is not just on an intellectual level, but also on an intuitive level. I'm intimately familiar with the dance of social interaction. The information I just provided sounds like a mundanity until I tell you I was diagnosed with autism. I defy the stereotypes of somebody who can't possibly get it socially. Nobody knows that I can, but I can get it. Of course, people don't see that. I struggle with impulsivity. My physical clumsiness makes it hard for me to maintain appropriate facial expressions and tone of voice. While I easily grasp abstract concepts, I often can't convert them into tangible step-by-step -step actions, making it difficult to communicate gracefully. Even the untrained eye notices these challenges and they confound my social faux pas as a failure to understand or share other people's expectations. I'm depleted. Every day at school, I isolate myself from most of my peers. It's a matter of time before they make these assumptions, before they postulate how my brain works. But on social media, I'm a completely different person. I'm dynamic, I'm assertive, I'm people-oriented. 
And then she goes on for several more paragraphs. You know, if you're thinking, you know, how's she embedding evidence? You know, she goes on to talk about disability and how it's seen and, you know, what the internet can do and how she uses emojis and that defies her own physical movements. And anyway, the kids uh, in this junior, in these junior classes I was working with were like, I never thought about any of that. It makes me rethink autistic people or people with any kind of disability. Um, so, and they just were very moved by it, so. I think it helps us rethink the stance towards social media as well. Well, that's her, part of her argument is yeah. like adult, you know, there's a whole chapter in the book where kids are like, shut up adults about social media. Here's why it's, mm -hmm. you know, useful and interesting and not just evil for teenage brains or whatever. So she's one of those. Um, but do you, I wanted to um, show a little, a very short video. She, when I first asked her if I could interview her, she said, well, as you know, from my essay, I'm not going to be comfortable talking to you. This was maybe a year and a half ago. So I'll answer your questions only via email. Um, but then fast forward a year, she's in this book. And I said, would you make a video? She said, okay. So I, uh, I'm, I was very happy to get this from her. And if you can play it, you guys can all meet Asaka. I think I can. So let's go. My name is Asaka Park and I wrote the editorial, I'm a disabled teenager and social media is my lifeline. And full disclosure, I'm literally reading from a script and I've heard this at least 10 times. So like when I first wrote that piece, I wrote it out of desperation. In hindsight, like it's not my most uplifting piece, but there's a sense of urgency, this sense of momentum and there's power in that, I think. I'm glad that I turned my pain into something productive and something that starts a broader conversation instead of just keeping it inside. There you have it. There you have it. Yeah. Invites I, a broader conversation. I mean, yeah. the way the way she thinks big about her writing is impressive. Yeah. And I don't know, like you don't think of I suspect a lot, you know, some of these are kind of lighthearted, like there's a girl making an argument about like why pineapple pizza deserves more respect, you know, like we, we have all kinds of arguments in this book, but there are quite a few where it's really out of a painful, yeah, you know, they're revealing themselves in some way that you think you associate more with like a personal essay, but you can see that it's got a lot of power, you know, it's the ethos and the pathos, right. um, both, so, yeah. I, I was impressed with the, uh, the two word sentence, I'm depleted. You know, that was quite moving, skillful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, should I, should yeah, I give you a couple more? Yeah, a couple more. Let's okay. get a flavor um, out of range. Yeah, I picked a couple. I, I don't know when this people will get to this, but they're very timely right now. So um, that's how I chose them. But. Uh, just, I mean, keep in mind, you know, overall what we're looking for as judges and what really gets me about these is like 450 words. You've got to pick something that you can argue that's small enough for 450 words. Like what we don't want is, and what we get much of, I have to say, is the like, I'm going to, you know, everyone should be, the whole world should be more concerned about climate change. You know, some huge thing, 450 words, it's a real cut and paste job. It's not, there's no there's nothing in it that tells me why you're writing it. So 
the ones I'm going to read to you, not only is it an argument that they can make in 450 words and you understand why they're making it, but they weave in evidence in a kind of graceful way. Um, and, you know, especially you'll hear in different ways, but there's voice, there's, there's like stylistic flourishes, you know, like they're just pulling off a lot here, I think. So the first one is a, by a 15 year old girl from, a, uh, I think the 2018 contest, uh, her name's Bridget Smith. And the name of the essay is dinner table politics. And you'll see why it's uh, seasonally timely. <laughs> the Thanksgiving table is a war zone, the soldiers, the conservative aunt who drove all the way from Alabama, the ultra progressive sibling who makes passive aggressive comments while passing the potatoes. And of course, the grandparents who stubbornly reference the good old days when political incorrectness roamed free. Throughout America, families hunker down for the holidays with reluctance and trepidation. Civil conversation concerning the issues facing our country is becoming rarer by the day. But if we can't talk about the issues, how can we fix them? The Thanksgiving table is a microcosm of the real world discussions in local and state governments, in Washington, in the White House itself. Americans must learn how to talk to each other about politics from the dinner table to the Oval Office. I've had my fair share of political discourse with friends and family. These conversations escalate quickly and infuriate easily, but haven't destroyed my relationships. I listen, disagree, and discuss. However, when faced with opposing viewpoints, many Americans polarize further. Instead of talking to those with whom they disagree, Americans find like-minded individuals who cater to their political tastes. In fact, according to the New York Times, quote, liberals and conservatives prefer to associate and live near their fellow partisans and quote, would be unhappy if their children married someone with a, with a different political viewpoint. This is troubling. We develop empathy when we talk with people from different backgrounds who challenge our beliefs. Our lack of conversation has turned us into, a rigid into our own rigid, stubborn grandparents, unwilling to consider alternate views. According to Pew Research, 38% of Democrats have consistently liberal views a dramatic increase from 1994 when only 8% remained consistently liberal. Mm. Americans' lack of political plasticity is growing rapidly, creating a chasm between things we support and things we don't. We see this divide every year at the Thanksgiving table. If we can't set aside what we think we know and talk to our stubborn grandparents, we become them. We remain entrenched and the gravy gets cold. Talking to people we disagree with is hard, but it should be easier to disagree with the people we love. Talking to family is a starting point to bridge that political chasm. Ask your aunt why she feels that way. Ask your grandparents what shapes their beliefs. Ask your siblings to suggest sol solutions. If we can empathize with our family at the Thanksgiving table, we can empathize with our neighbors, friends, and political representatives. Don't let your dinner table become a war zone. Talk to your fellow Americans, ask them questions, invite them to dinner and show up and speak your mind. You might start a new tradition. So. It is timely, isn't it? Uh, Most timely. I like that uh, series of questions about like, ask them about you know, how your views were formed, what experiences is behind them. That's, that's great. That's a really important suggestion. Right, and I, I, I like how she manages to make the whole Thanksgiving analogy last. You know, she just hits it now and again, the gravy's getting cold, you know, just yeah. to remind you. Right. It seems very, very sophisticated for a 15 year old to me, but- um, Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, and, you know, in terms of like, 
the the evidence she weaves in, I think, um, not that we don't know we're polarized, but that was a slightly bit of new, slightly new information for me that maybe in 94, liberals didn't say that they believed only, you know, that we've hardened our positions over the years. So right. anyway. Yeah, I thought that was skillful too. I, I agree. Okay, how about one more? Okay, here's my last one. And you'll see this one's also sadly extremely uh, timely right now. And this one's by uh, Narayan Dubey, who was 17 when he wrote it. And it's called Breaking the Blue Wall of Silence, Changing the Social Narrative About Policing in America. And he writes, as a child, I thought of police officers with veneration. If I saw a cop in the park, I felt safer. I told myself that when I got older, I'd be wearing the badge too. At 12 year, years old, I learned about police brutality. When I first saw the video of Eric Garner being thrown to the ground by police officers, I thought it was a movie. Despite knowing the officers were at fault, I refused to change my internal rhetoric. I thought the media was only portraying the bad side of the people I saw as heroes. Then on July 31st, 2017, a police officer shot and killed my cousin, Isaiah Tucker, while he was driving. Isaiah wasn't just my cousin. He was also a young, unarmed African-American man. I no longer dreamt of becoming a police officer. But the issue is much larger than what happened to Isaiah. As highlighted in the New York Times, the Center of Policing Equity found that African-Americans are 3.6 times more likely to experience force by police officers as compared to whites. Despite this blatant disproportionality, there's still overwhelming ignorance about it. Just last August, a group of people marched in Philadelphia, countering Black Lives Matter protests with signs and chants of Blue Lives Matter. People are quick to challenge discussions of police violence with the idea that not all cops are bad cops. But when we argue in defense of the morality of individual police officers, we're undermining a protest of the larger issue, the unjust system of policing in the United States. When I met Wesley Lowry, a journalist from the Washington Post, he was adamant that the social narrative regarding police brutality in the US needs to change. Quote, conversations about police reform and accountability are about systems and structures, not about individuals, he said. It's not that some police officers aren't doing admirable things in our communities, but revering police for not abusing their power is dangerous. It normalizes police violence and numbs society to these issues. The idea that not all cops are bad cops belittles attempts to uproot the system. When we go out of our way to controvert this fight, we are perpetuating the inherent problems with racialized policing. So as you think about policing in America, think of Eric Garner, think of Alton Sterling, my cousin Isaiah, and the families that were left behind. We have a responsibility as citizens of this country to call out corruption and systems of power. Policing in America is rooted in racism, oppression, and privilege. It's time we recognize that. I learned to change my perspective. So can you. When, what year was that? It was 2019. Um, yeah. yeah, so. Yeah. And I, you know, I did get to interview him and he said I needed permission from my whole family to write about this publicly, you know, to put it out there about my cousin and, you know, my family thought that was a good way to honor him to to make this essay about him. So super powerful. Also, a really uh, difficult. I mean, uh, America's founded on individual individualism, and you know, is a central value. And to it's very very hard to uh, argue as Black Lives Matters people will say to 
to, to talk about the system and the structure instead of the individuals, so. Right, I mean, exactly. The arguments he makes in this essay, what I was saying before is like, sometimes it's news to us, or you know, you might read it before the summer of 2020 when everybody was in the streets and, and have those thoughts for the first time, especially if you were a kid you know, in a high school somewhere, which is the thrilling part about the idea of this book that maybe like, you know, each of these kids, like teachers could assign their work and other kids could be studying right. it. And what a wild thing, you know, so. Well, they're, they're inspiring. I think they are. <laughs> I mean, just just to, to hear their thoughtfulness and their commitment to really important things. Um, I mean, change, change an individual mind or change a system, you know, it's all there. Yeah. So it's pretty... Um, Pretty exciting, Catherine, to have these, and it's it's great to have them available um, in a book. So um, thanks for all the work that you did to put them together. Yeah, I mean, the goal, of course, is for every kid to read the book and be like, "Wait, my perspective's not in here," and for them to write their own. And you know, whether I mean, for our contest or anything else, because you know, the work you guys do, you're you're trying to get them to write argument for the real world constantly. So. You know, if you know the working for the New York Times is such a funny thing, right? Like, it's a, like it just has outsized import, right? So the idea that Times journalists chose these like is such an, a, a check plus, so such a gold star, right? Yeah. Um, and and so that's important for these kids, and sure. it's great that we can use the platform to do that. But I feel like okay, those are the ones that came my way, but every teacher's seen these, right? Like every teacher has got kids in their class that are, that can do this and for local things or whatever. So, so um, uh, viewers, I, I have some good news and that um, as, as great as this has been uh, to hear uh, from Catherine and to hear the student work, we're not done yet. And we, um, so be watching for um, another uh, session with Catherine and for uh, National Writing Project teachers coming in the next months. Uh, be on the lookout for that. And uh, make sure that you can um, uh, find, find the book, Norton, and order it. Um, I think it's a, a, fabulous, uh, a fabulous resource for um, argument writing. And we'll hear more about that from the four teachers. And I wanted to uh, thank you, Catherine, for your time, your efforts, and for um, for reading the student essays. They were um, they were amazing and wonderful. And yes, I think students all over the country can do the same thing. Me too. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, I can't wait to hear what those four teachers do with the essays. Me so. too. All right. <laughs> Thanks everybody for watching. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. NWP Radio.